Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello. Welcome to another episode of Ancient Office Hours by the Ozymandias Project. Trireme Transit is now boarding for all new and returning passengers. Now departing, present ponderings. Next stop is Ancient Office Hours at a library lost in the sands of time. Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 61 of Ancient Office Hours. This week, I hosted Dr. Yanis Hamalakis, a professor of archaeology and modern Greek studies at Brown University. His research interests include the politics of the past, nationalism and colonialism, archaeology of the senses, decolonial theory and practices of decolonization, archaeology of the senses, contemporary migration, and Aegean prehistory. He co-directs Kutrulu Magula Archaeology and Archaeological Ethnography Project and carries out fieldwork on contemporary migration on the island of Lesvos. In this episode, we talked about how the materiality of antiquity in Greece impacted him growing up, how he came to study the archaeology of food and drink, his new book on archaeology and nationalism, and whether he believes nationalism existed in the ancient world. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you like what you hear, please give us a five-star rating and review us on Apple or Spotify. You can also subscribe to our Patreon, as this will allow us to reach more people and make more exciting ancient world content. Enjoy! Thank you so much for joining me this evening on my podcast. I was so excited to get to talk to you, and I'm hoping to start off with what I hope is going to be a very easy question for you, which is, how did you get into classics? How did, where did this love of the ancient world start? Where did it come from? Hi, Alexia. I, as you know, I was born in Greece. Um, I was born on the island of Crete uh, some time ago. And the daily life for me was a kind of an embodied interaction with the materiality of antiquity, with archaeological sites, with my known sites, with other traces or remnants from the remote past. So that was, I guess, the first first kind of stimulation for me to start becoming curious about those things, about kind of their importance, their meaning, their connection to our contemporary life. And then um, I have to also uh, say, and I'm saying also so in, in, in a recent book, that my father, who was not an educated mom, he never went beyond the primary school, and the same goes for my mother, was an archaeophile, was a person who really loved antiquities, loved you know, to learn about the ancient past. We had very few books at home, but uh, the, you know, some of the books we had 
poor to do with with my non archaeology with antiquities coming from you know the island of Crete and with kind of I remember a popular book um, by the French author Paul Four called Everyday Life in My Non Crete. So I guess it was a combination of that uh, daily embodied interaction with critical sites and then the impact of my father's love towards antiquities. Wonderful. And I'm curious, because obviously growing up in a place like Greece, you're exposed to all the ancient things just around you in your country. But a lot of Greek people don't end up going into ancient history as a, as a career. So you sound like you're very fortunate to have a father who is so into it. In growing up in a place like this, were you able to go on school trips to see some ancient sites or was this very much something started at home and how much does the Greek like early education system really focus on its ancient history? You know it's this is a topic that I ended up kind of investigating myself later in my uh, writings and my professional life. You probably know since you've lived in Greece yourself that the materiality of antiquity is a central part in the life of the country today in many different ways. In course about, you know, contemporary life or about politics or society or history. And it's also a big part of the curriculum, even at, you know, the early stages, even in the primary school. Antiquity um, shows up in the educational textbooks, not necessarily in the most engaging way, not necessarily in the most informative way, but it's there and it is a kind of a big part of what uh, school kids learn growing up. But as I said, for me, it wasn't so much the formal education, it was the informal interaction with the thing. Because I mean, one key kind of, I guess, contradiction in the discourse around antiquity Greece is that very often that the academic, the formal education around antiquity focuses more on historical knowledge, on events, on ancient history in the abstract. And yet I found that it is the specificity and the physicality and the materiality of the thing and the artifact and the object and the archeological site, the stones themselves, the shares that you find as you open the countryside that appeal to me. And I think that immediate sensorial connection was what actually did it for me and made me think that maybe archeology span is something I would like to continue studying. Having said all that, as I also say recently in a book, in that book, the same book uh, which we may talk later about, I had a parallel interest on literature, on contemporary literature, fiction and poetry and things like that. And I was reading a lot of that. And in fact, when I came to submit my paperwork for the university, I was in two minds. I wasn't sure whether I really wanted to do archaeology or philology, study contemporary literature. And I ended up actually submitting in my forms as number one literature. And then lower down, I put archaeology. But literature had higher entry requirements. And in my exams, I did well, but not, not well enough to actually get my first choice. So I ended up in my second choice, which was archaeology. I never regretted it, but it was a, an interesting accident in that kind of early formation of my life that uh, I could have ended up, you know, studying contemporary literature, which I'm sure I've enjoyed it as well, but how things work. 
Yeah. And I mean, I find it fascinating. And for those of my listeners, would you mind explaining kind of how the Greek university system functions when I think Americans, when you think of going to university, we pay and then we go and then you can choose wherever you want to go and to study whatever you want. And I know how different it is in Greece, but for those who don't, would you mind explaining what you mean by your scores weren't high enough and so you couldn't go study your first choice? Um, Yeah, it is, as you say, very different from the American system. Now I'm based in the US and I'm professor at Brown University, but I did do my first degree in Greece and obviously my early schooling there. So uh, first of all, uh, readers need to know that universities in Greece are public institutions. Uh, You do not pay fees to go to university. So I think that's an important parameter to keep in mind, because as I said, I did not really have an academic background and my parents did not have a formal education. And if it was a private university system, maybe they wouldn't have had the the means as well as the cultural capital to actually push me towards, towards university studies. So the system is based on examinations. So at the end of your secondary school, the last year of your secondary school, you have to sit exams and that these are kind of common uh, for the whole of the country. So the topics are decided at the level of the Ministry of Education and they're the same for every school kid who is actually sitting these exams for the university. Before that, prior to that, you have to fill in a form where you state your preferences, your topics that you would like to study and the different universities you would like to go to. And these preferences, depending on the on the demand, may be you know high enough for some people or low enough for others. So topics, you know, popular topics have very high entry requirements. Less popular topics are easier to get to. This is how the system works. That's why I had to fill in those forms and state my preferences. And at that time, the study of literature had higher entry requirements compared to the study of archaeology. They were close. But literature, philology in general, was higher than archaeology. In some ways, um, the whole system functions such a way that, you know, it incorporates an element of lack of uh, contingency, that you may want to do one thing, but you may end up doing something else at the end. Of course, you have an opportunity once you get into a university school to transfer, to change, or wait for another year and kind of try again, you know, for your first choice in the following year. That's so interesting. I mean, it's so unlike anything in the U.S. I mean, I know this information, but it's always a bit still shocking to hear when people say, oh, yeah, I I wanted to do this, but I had to go do this instead. So I have a very good friend who's a tour guide in Greece, but he is an archaeologist by trade. So I'm curious, and this is kind of another oddly specific question, I suppose, but Can you talk a little bit about your path actually into academia proper when speaking to someone like my friend Aristotle, he says it's very easy to get some degree in archaeology, but then there's not a lot of opportunity in Greece to really pursue that. So a lot of archaeologists end up just going into tour guiding and for the official Greek ministry. So can you talk a little bit about how you didn't end up being a tour guide? Yeah, I mean, that is correct. There are many students who study archaeology in Greece and also many Greek students who study archaeology abroad in in many other countries. But there are not really enough places to absorb all those people into archaeology. Mm -hmm. Again, like in universities, archaeological activity in Greece regulated by the state and the state archaeological service employs a limited number of archaeologists. Mm -hmm. 
not really enough for the activity, not really enough for the number of monuments in the country, not enough for the things that needed to be done and need to be done. So people very often choose different careers, having archaeology as a main background, but doing other things, for example, they can go with the same degree, they can go to education. Mm -hmm. They can be teachers in the secondary school. You know, they may pursue their archaeological uh, interests and love through education, you know, teach kids, you know, archaeology or kind of perform mock excavations in the schoolyard or taking kids, you know, into different archaeological sites. And many, as you say, become uh, tour guides. Mm -hmm. Also, in some ways, to have educated two guys who actually know these sites at some depth beyond what you can read in a guide is also very, very important. If you wanted to, to have a career in archaeology, you need to go beyond the first degree, beyond the BA. You need to pursue the study of the subject through a master's and very often through a PhD. Now, when I was doing that in Greece, there were very few masters and PhD programs mm. in archaeology. It was kind of the beginning of establishing archaeology as a graduate topic in Greece. So many of us who wanted to continue into archaeology had to go abroad, as I did. Mm -hmm. So when I finished my BA, I went to England first for a master's at the University of Sheffield. I studied environmental archaeology and paleoeconomy as my degree. <laughs> And then um, returned to Greece for a year and then returned again to England for my PhD at the same university, University of Sheffield. This is a kind of a normal path for many people who want to pursue archaeology as a career. Now, in Greece, there are a number of uh, universities which have graduate programs. So you can do master's and PhD in Greek universities. The issue of employment is still, and probably more so now, a big issue. Many of them will not find um, academic positions. And they, you know, they kind of, they try to diversify. A number of them actually pursue employment abroad with mm -hmm. their studies. And there are a number of colleagues from Greece who teach now in many universities in Europe, in the US, in other countries, even in countries like India or China or and there are others who try to work in the broader heritage sector, so beyond archaeologists we find in museums mm -hmm. or in cultural organizations that have started appearing in kind of in Greece beyond the state archaeological service. I mean, it's fascinating, but also it's a little unfortunate back then that they there wasn't a really diverse yeah. amount of programs that would allow Greek students to continue on to do higher degrees. So, I mean, I suppose, depending on how you look at it, it's really nice that you're able to go abroad and have that experience, but also it would kind of be nice and make sense to be able to do something like that in Greece itself. Absolutely, absolutely. And there's also the financial dimension that, mm -hmm. you know, there are some master's programs in Greece now that charge fees, but there are also several others that do not charge fees, whereas in Britain, every university, you know, charge fees for master's and PhD. So there was also that dimension that people did not necessarily, could not afford to do so. Mm -hmm. unless they got a scholarship or a fellowship. Yeah, the, the landscape has changed a lot in the last few years with many universities having their own graduate programs. So there are now more opportunities for people to do so in Greece, yeah. Oh, man. Now, I'm curious about your research once you did go abroad to get that degree. How did you choose your specialization? Yeah, my choice of the MA program was linked directly to my uh, undergraduate studies in many ways. First, I want to say that it got me, you know, it took me some time during my four-year degree at the University of Crete mm -hmm. to get into archaeology seriously. 
what I meant by that is that I was I was put off at the beginning by um, a curriculum which was very formalistic. Mm. It was more to do with um, the study of typology and less with the study of you know society, the study of meaning, the study of kind of the importance of materiality um, as a kind of um, social factor. It was a curriculum that didn't really appeal to me. Uh, the other thing that I think is crucial for us to say, because it explains many of my choices later in my career, is that archaeology then, when I went to the University of Crete, was primarily classical archaeology defined in a sense, mm. right? Defined in the sense of the study of statues, pottery, or you know other kind of categories of material culture, as I said, in a very typological and formalistic manner. It was a tradition that was dominant in many universities all around Europe in classical archaeology, coming primarily from the German philological tradition of the 19th century. So many of my professors then were trained in that tradition. So when I started going to those kind of courses, I, I didn't find the interest. So I did that, and, you know, I developed as a human being. I got into kind of student politics. I got into cultural activities and all that. The kinds of things that people, at least in those days, could still do as part of the broader university education. That's the classes. I mean, you know what I mean? You know, you do all these things because you, you grow up as a person and you become an independent human being through all these interactions with people with you know political landscapes and it was in the last you know the latter part of my undergraduate uh, years when I discovered some fascinating courses to do with archaeology of a different kind <laughs> you know beyond that formalistic art historical in the narrow sense tradition so there were courses to do with uh, what we call prehistory mm-hmm. with the Bronze Age Minoan Mycenaean even Neolithic societies mm-hmm. Uh, courses to do with themes as opposed to periods, to do with you know burial customs, to do with tool making and technologies, to do with environmental connections. And I had a, a wonderful course with Professor Andiklia Mudrea Grafiotti, a colleague, but then a professor of mine who was on a temporary contract. And that mm-hmm. was quite interesting. They were kind of the people who were on precarious employment relationships in the university who were teaching the most exciting courses <laughs> because they were the more recently employed by the university, mm-hmm. but also the ones that they could not get permanent jobs, partly because they could not fit into that very formalistic establishment position and tradition. Right. And these courses that appealed to me, the course that I just mentioned by uh, Mudrea Grafiotti was on environmental archaeology. Mm-hmm. And on connections between landscapes, environments, and humans in prehistory, but also in later periods. And I found that fascinating. It was the first time I could you know, I saw that I could I could do that kind of archaeology as part of my degree. Mm-hmm. So when I finished, I started looking for a May programs that could do where I could do something similar. The program that appealed to me and all of the very the first ones actually to to teach environmental archaeology in anywhere in Europe was the master's in Sheffield in England. Mm-hmm. It had some really interesting uh, professors, some of whom I had read in, in, in my own studies in the literature. And it became, uh, in later, later years, a very influential program. A number of archaeologists now teaching in universities all over the world had gone through that program and then stayed on for a PhD. So that's how I ended up there, doing that master's in archaeology. Wow, that's incredible. That's wonderful. Now, 
I read somewhere that you were very interested in the archaeology of eating and drinking. And I was so intrigued by this that I have to ask, in what context, how, and is this like you just love food and <laughs> ancient drinks? Like, please explain this. Well, I certainly love food and drink, <laughs> but that was the only one reason that actually led me to study food and drink. By the way, I'm teaching now at Brown a first year seminar on uh, the archaeology and anthropology of eating and drinking. Wonderful. It's an extremely popular. It's going to be the second semester this year, and I already have a number of people who are writing to me, trying to get into the course because it's already full. So there's a waiting list, and I may have to interview people <laughs> in January to accept some more above the cap. It is a wonderful topic to study and also to introduce students to various ideas through a practice that concerns all of us, mm -hmm. a practice that we you know, we practice every day in our daily life, and we often do it without theorizing or thinking or reflecting on what we do and what's the meaning. So it, it's a topic that it's very, very close to me and very dear to my heart. As I said, I did that master's in environmental archaeology. As part of it, I had to do a dissertation and I had to choose between zooarchaeology, that is the study of human human animal interactions, archaeobotany, which is mm plants and humans, or something which was going to be more esoteric as in kind of the study of soils or insects or shells, I ended up studying um, zooarchaeology, human-animal interactions. And as we know, most of the remnants of animals we find in archaeological sites are remnants of food, mm -hmm. are bones that they are discarded at the end of feasting events, at the end of eating episodes and eating practices. Mm -hmm. So through that detailed study of animal bones as food remnants got into practices around food in prehistory. And then I continued the topic in my own PhD in which I studied wine and olive oil. <laughs> Wine and olive oil. That's so Greek, but it's so lovely. It's so I know it sounds stereotypical. <laughs> it was meant <laughs> to be that. But in fact, if you read the literature on, pre, on pre, the prehistory of the Aegean, you see that the cultivation of vines and the cultivation of olives is a central topic in discussing, you know, bigger, bigger questions like the development of palaces in Crete and in Greece, the minor palaces of Knossos or other sites. Archaeologists used to say that it was the intensive cultivation of vines for wine and olives for, you know, olive oil that actually led to the formation of palatial institutions. Now, I wanted to, to question that, that hypothesis. I wanted to. So I started studying wine and olive oil. What happened was that at the beginning, I was, uh, it was suggested to me I should study the cultivation practices, study the ecology and the economics of cultivating um, vines and olives. And at the end, or halfway through my PhD, I realized that I think the most important thing is not so much the cultivation, it's the demand. Mm. Why do people suddenly want to consume wine and olive oil? You know, what drives this desire? 
So it became became a PhD on consumption, on on wine drinking and the use of olive oil. <laughs> and you could, I still said things about the broader political institution in Crete, specifically in the Bronze Age, but it was through practices that involved the consumption of wine and olive oil. And you can, I mean, you can ask me, how do we know? Well, <laughs> yeah, first of all, we have the uh, remnants in terms of botany, in terms of seeds. But mostly for these two crops, we have pottery that's to do with consumption of, let's say, wine. I mean, you have the drinking cups. Mm -hmm. You may have seen in museums in Crete and elsewhere in, in Greece, pottery cups. And very often in some periods, you find them in, by the thousands. And many of them are, are not really very elaborately decorated. They're plain, mm -hmm. undecorated, small, uh, very often conical cups that we know most of them were used in ceremonies of drinking. So if you find them, especially in big pits, in big kind of deposits where they were thrown in and very often sealed on the top after a big feasting episode, you know that mm -hmm. here you had a gathering of people, a huge gathering of people who are drinking was an important factor. So I studied that kind of wine question indirectly. <laughs> through the presence very often of pottery, but also combining with, with the presence of botanical finds or wine presses. That's the other element we find in archaeology, installations mm -hmm. where grapes were pressed to produce wine. So, so through that kind of archaeology and then the study of wine and avoid, I got fascinated by questions of food and drink. That's so fascinating. Well, one, I want to read this dissertation on consumption and wine and olive oil. It sounds amazing. But also it sounds so interesting because I have a very good friend who she's not in classics. She's actually in anthropology, mm -hmm. but she's doing her dissertation currently on storage jars, storage jars. It's in the later periods. It's, I think she's excavating Pompeii. Mm. But she was very interested in storage jars with, with food and, and what foods were being transported at this time around the Mediterranean. How are they being preserved? So it's fascinating to me, all the different issues with food that I never would have thought of. Absolutely, absolutely. And the archaeology of food is a booming field right now. I'm involved in a journal that I started publishing actually this past year called The Archaeology of Food and Food Ways. So, you know, a journal dedicated just to the archaeology of food because there are so many people and so many studies using also new data that we didn't have when I was doing my PhD, like um, organic residues. Mm. Pottery, very often because of its porous nature, absorbs substances. So very often you'll find, especially with oils, you'll find that you can take a piece of pot and even if it doesn't, to your eye, uh, doesn't show anything, you mm -hmm. can actually process it and find the remnants of it, the traces of it, chemically absorbed within the fabric of pottery. So that chemical kind of analysis of pots for residues is a new uh, and very exciting method that we use for the archaeology of food. And then you can also think of other methods such as mm. a little material, and through that you can understand kind of the lifetime of somebody's kind of nutritional history. So yeah, it's a kind of, it's an exciting and a fascinating field. So I'm, I'm looking forward to teaching it again in, in January. Wow. Well, it sounds like that would pair well with, I know a couple of professors at Cornell who teach, there's a class on like the history of wine or something like that. So I was like, oh man, that, that sounds like it'd be fun to pair with your class. Yes. 
got to do a collaboration there, bring, bring the wine appreciation nerds <laughs> together. And then I am, I'm also aware of there's some pretty well-known archaeo baking or, or something like that, but there's a gastro-Egyptologist, Seamus Blackley, I follow him on, on social media, and he recreates ancient breads that were, he like finds how they were made in ancient Egypt and then he bakes them in his kitchen and then posts them on social media and says, well, I'm going to try this one today. So it's fascinating and I hope more people get into it. But I'm really also eager to ask you about the, your interest in archaeology and nationalism because I just came from a year in Greece studying nationalism of Greece and the Balkan areas, but I'm interested how that interest came about since that is so very different from the food. <laughs> it's, it, you're right. It is. Uh, and again, it goes back to my um, early undergraduate years, I guess, or even before. You know, I talked about how when you grow up in Greece, you cannot really avoid archaeological sites everywhere, but also you cannot avoid the public deployment in discourses around politics in the country as a whole. So unlike many other countries, any you know, the political discourse in Greece very often involves archaeological sites and antiquities, materiality of antiquities in a very direct way, be it you know, around the policies of protection, or, you know, collection strategies or rights to ownership of sites or private collections, but also at the very symbolic level before beyond the level of kind of heritage management and protection, the symbolic level of connections to an ancestral past, connections to a classical moment, especially, you know, the, especially the fifth moment, the fifth century BC moment, when the European imagination claims and projects to all of us that it was the fundamental and primeval moment for European and global societies. So when I was growing up, I realized that, you know, if I'm to become an archaeologist, if I'm to get into this seriously, I cannot really address those issues. I cannot really not reflect at least on what's happening here, how that kind of political deployment of antiquities connect with the more academic aspect, connect with the more interpretive character of archaeology. How does the political discourse shape archaeological uh, narratives and archaeological practices as well? You know, choices on what to excavate and where and what mm -hmm. kind of stories you tell at the end of an excavation. So I started uh, alongside my, my my studies, you know, more academic kind of more formal studies. I started kind of collecting stories around this politics of archaeology in the media, primarily collecting kind of newspaper stories that speak to that kind of concern. And I I did in the mid early mid nineties an article on the topic with a colleague called Eliana Yeluri, with whom I collaborated later as well. On uh, the article was. Antiquities as symbolic capital in modern Greek society. So we advocated the idea that in addition to the economic capital of the country, in this case, you know, Greece is a, it's not a rich country, as we know, it's a poor country. There is a huge capital in the form of symbolic capital that has acquired a very, very important role, primarily because of an external mechanism of valuation, primarily because it was the European elites in the 18th and 19th century that propagated classical antiquity as a foundational moment in the European and the global imagination. So that became then for the emerging state of Greece in the 19th century, an important symbolic resource upon which people could establish a state 
and at the same time project a global role that was well beyond the economic role of the country or even the diplomatic role of the country. In those kind of metrics, Greece sounded and is a small country, but in terms of its cultural capital, symbolic capital institution, became a superpower, became a country that could claim direct connection to that primeval uh, moment in the European imagination. So um, that article became the beginning of then a more systematic study. I realized later that I could not really do it as a kind of, the Greek word is parergon, as something you do alongside your main concerns. It needed to be studied systematically and kind of consistently. So then nationalism and archaeology became one of my main kind of topics of study. And in 2007, I published a book called The Nation and its Ruins, Archaeology, Antiquity, and National Imagination in Greece, where I took a long-term perspective on the role of antiquity within the national imagination of the country. That is so fascinating. And it speaks to exactly what I was interested in. And at first, when I thought that I wanted to go on in graduate school and, and be tangentially involved in classics or archaeology, I thought that's where I would go and do, ah, oh, okay, I'll do nationalism and archaeology. But I didn't have some of the prerequisites. And so it was a bit complicated, which is why I said, you know what, it's fine. Greece is so connected to its history. So even if you study nationalism in the contemporary context, you're still going to get questions about the ancient world. And so one of the classes I took was a nationalism in Southeastern Europe course. And for my like final term paper, my professor said, okay, you guys can choose to talk about any topic you want as long as it's related to nationalism. And I ambitiously said, okay, well, can I work on the question of did nationalism exist in some early like proto-nationalism form in the ancient world because I'd like to talk about ancient Greece but also the ancient world more generally and he said oh well uh my professor and I disagreed because he did definitely believe that it was a that nationalism is a concept that developed with modernity in the 18th century and I said yeah but <laughs> as, as someone else who's equally is interested in this I'd be so curious to know, what do you think? Do you believe that nationalism itself is something only developed in modernity, or do you believe there could have been a proto-nationalism existing in the ancient world? It's a very interesting question, Lexi. I think, uh, as you say, the, the majority of scholars, if not all of them, the orthodoxy is that it is a modern phenomenon. It is an ideology of modernity. And I think Part of it is to do with a certain, they connected to certain political, social, and even technological developments. You know, the notion of the state, the modern state, they connected to practices of homogenization of the population, uh, practices to do with typography and newspapers as connecting and unifying a large population and using the same language and the same kind of educational uh, mechanisms to propagate a sense of coherence for a large population. So that's the um, the orthodoxy. I have, in my book, I did follow that, that kind of thesis myself. But I could, I can see how in the ancient world, we did certainly have practices of ethnic, as opposed to national, ethnic identity. Ethnicity was certainly a key parameter for the lives of people, and groups were defined very often on the basis of ethnicity. 
otherness, of course, was defined in many different ways. Ethnicity was one of them, of course. Uh, gender was another. Uh, but, you know, language. language is an interesting kind of question because it's a shared feature for both ethnicity and nationalism. Ethnicity in the ancient world, to a large extent, was based on, on who speaks what language. And language in the modern in the modern world is also a key in the definition of national identities. So I still think that nationalism, as we understand it today, is certainly a modern phenomenon. I think there are elements of it that could be found within practice of ethnic identity and ethnicity in the ancient world. You know, I will say yes. When when put succinctly like that, I cannot claim that nationalism itself existed in the ancient world, which I totally alluded to in my essay. And I said, look, I don't have a really a better word. And so I said, I'm going to use it and yeah. call it nationalism. But what I really mean is, yes, the early beginnings of what it could be, because I was so, so influenced, I would say, primarily by Anthony D. Smith and his idea of ethnies. And I read some Benedict Anderson. And I know while Anderson's idea of imagined communities was more modern, I kind of applied Smith's ethnies to the imagined communities. And I said, ah, see, this is something. It's a proto-nationalism. I was thinking of Smith just before you mentioned it, because you're right. He's an exception in many ways uh, amongst the numbers of specialists on nationalism that he sees some sort of long duration in the ideas of nation goes back or before kind of modernity. So yeah, I'm glad you had uh, had fun exploring that. It was fascinating. It was probably one of the most entertaining things I I did this year. And so now you have a new book that just came out recently, I believe, or it's about to come out, one of the two, but I'm really excited about it. So could you please tell my listeners, what is the new book about? Yeah, it came out in March, March 2022. Um, It is a co-authored book, co-authored with my good colleague and friend, uh, Rafi Greenberg. Rafi is a professor of archaeology at the University of Tel Aviv in Israel. And he was um, he was visiting Brown the first year of the pandemic. You know, it hap- he came here before the pandemic, but he happened to, to live the beginning of the pandemic at Brown. Rafi is an archaeologist of the Bronze Age, but he's also interested on the politics of archaeology and the politics of the past. And he works in a country, Israel, where the Israel-Palestinian conflict is, of course, a major factor and affects everything, including archaeology. Archaeology, as we know from other studies, was instrumental in the construction of ideas of the nation from Israel. So Rafi wanted to come here and study. He had also read my first book, The Nation in its Ruins, so he wanted to, to do something similar for Israel. We ended up teaching a course together. A course took the two countries, Greece and Israel, as two cases for comparison. We both said, what if we have two countries that they are they're very different historically? One is a country which is in the 19th century. Another is a country which created in the mid of 20th century under different kinds of conditions. But there are also countries that share some commonalities we may want to explore. One was the the share Ottoman heritage, that both countries were part of the Ottoman Empire until the 19th century and then century for Israel. But also there are countries where archaeology is extremely important in the construction of ideas of the nation and in the political life of the country. So we spent a semester 
uh, with a small group of students in a seminar, debating ideas about nationalism. We inserted colonialism as well, because we felt that that's a parameter that needs to be explored. And progressively, we also inserted ideas about race. Now, race was a topic that I had not really explored in my first book, because I considered nationalism in Greece as primarily a cultural phenomenon, a phenomenon that's to do with the spiritual dimensions of Hellenism. But I had realized more recently that maybe there are, talking about proto-nationalism, there are also issues of proto-race or race disguised in kind of different forms in the case of Greece. And remember, uh, the spring of 2020, besides being the spring of the pandemic, was also the spring of Black Lives Matter demonstrations, which were happening all over the country in the US and shaped in many ways our thinking in reflecting on questions of race. So we did the course exploring all those issues, nationalism, colonialism, race. And at the end of the course, we thought we should write something together to gather and summarize some of the things we learned collectively in that class. So we were locked uh, up in our own houses. We couldn't even, you know, communicate face-to-face uh, -face in, in Providence. So we started recording, as we do now, recorded kind of recording our conversations. We structured them in the shape of a dialogue, and we started, you know, having two, three, four, five kind of long sessions or conversations, which we then transcribed and used as a basis for expanding our manuscript. Now, initially, we thought we'll do an article, we'll do something short, and then we realized that there's a lot here we cannot really exhaust in, in the space in the shape of an article. And we started writing more and more and became a pamphlet, and the pamphlet became a small book and then a medium-sized book. So now it is a medium-sized book called Archaeology, Nation, and Race, Confronting the Past, Decolonizing the Future in Greece and Israel. It is published by Cambridge University Press, as I said, came out in March. And um, we had fun doing it, which is important. And it's all structured as a dialogue. So every chapter has that back and forth between me and my co-author. And I think this is the format that we loved. And I think our readers so far have told us that they loved that too. That they could see the lively kind of development of our thought as we go along. So that's very different from um, the standard academic monographs that they are kind of long chapters uh, of a deep thorough exploration. We have research in this one, but expressed in that kind of informal dialogic format, like, like a podcast, like the things we're doing now. So we had a great fun doing it. And I hope that our readers also have fun reading it. For me, it marks a transition in many ways in my own thinking from thinking about nationalism said primarily as a cultural concept to thinking about it as a concept that also has deep racial undertones. So one of our jobs in that book was to explore how the, the countries of Greece and Israel became white, something that we did not really, we should not take for granted any longer. We tend to think, okay, they're both white countries. Well, no, they became white through a specific process of Europeanization, a process through which, you know, other facets of their identity or other groups and populations became expelled from the national core through the national body. 
And you can see this also being reflected in, in, in antiquity and in archaeology, even from the beginning, you know, the beginnings of classical archaeology, when in the German tradition, classical Greece was constructed as a white heritage. There were, of course, attempts. The most famous of, the, of them is the, the book by Bernal on the Black Athena, now several you know, decades old, but still extremely important. Bernal tried to, uh, to Martin Bernal tried to show that classical civilization borrowed lots of elements from cultures in the Eastern Mediterranean, from Egypt, from the Levant, from you know countries, populations, and cultures further afield. So that positioning of the classical moment of Greece within its context in the Eastern Mediterranean is something that he was trying to do. Unfortunately, at that moment when these books came out were not really received very positively. I mean, it, there were mistakes in the process, of course, and Bernal was not an archaeologist, but the thesis of showing that complexity of interaction was, I think, a very sound one. And I think it's probably time now for classicists and archaeologists and others to revisit these debates in light of what we're now considering as an important facet, like discussing classical antiquity in relation to to race. So these are kind of a few thoughts on, on the book, but um, you know, I'm happy to answer other, other questions you may have about it. I mean, I just think it's fascinating because I find myself, and a lot on the podcast with other scholars talking about Bernal's legacy and his work and having to revisit it in, in a number of contexts. But also what struck me is how, yeah, all this early book stuff really came out in 2020 when, yes, as you're right, it was a pandemic, it was Black Lives Matter. And for me as an Asian American, you know, that was the time also of an additional reckoning because yes, we had the Black Lives Matter stuff really come to a head. But that's also a time where more than anything, we were getting more like Asian hate because of the pandemic and all that. So, I mean, I'm just thinking like, wow, what a what a time to suddenly pick up and decide to go further into race. And I mean, you obviously no one has time to study every conflict of every community, but oh, I'm, I'm guessing there would have been so much more. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we need to revisit these questions today. And I think I want to add something else here. I'm a white person or... I want to put it somewhere differently. I have been construed and produced as a white European person through the processes we talk in the book, but also through other things. But I think race is also an issue for white people. And I think that's something that we need to explore. We have to confront our own constitution as a specific kind of Europeanized discourse. And that's what we are trying to do in the book. We are not trying to, to kind of still the topic from you know other groups we are trying to confront our own heritage and confront that kind of violent process of homogenizing a country not only nationally but also racially it is very problematic to say that race is only an issue for the racial other is only an issue from as you say asian americans or african americans or other people no no it's also an issue for white academics and white people to confront seriously I mean, yeah, there's so much to get into there. Now, I have too many questions about the book, and I have no idea how I would fit them into a short-ish podcast. So what I will say is I'm going to let your wonderful explanation of the premise of the book entice people to go do more research and find it and read it and hopefully reach out to you with, with many of their questions. So to sort of transition us away, what I am curious about 
mm-hmm. is since you are Greek, this is a fun question that I like to ask. Not often I get to ask someone from one of these countries. So as a Greek person, there are a lot, too many, so many different media adaptations of ancient material, things based in Greece. What do you think of many of the things we have, the Brad Pitt Troy or, or something, the Alexander movie. I find it quite a shame that we don't cast Greek people uh, in these roles. So do you actually enjoy watching a lot of the adaptations of ancient Greeks, even if it's not Greek people, or is it not really that fun? Well, I mean, uh, the classical legacy legacy is a global legacy. I want to start by saying is that I do not think uh, that I, as a person, you know, of Greek origin, should <laughs> should express a kind of ownership or an exclusive state on anything to do with the classical legacy. It has been construed, as we said, in a specific way, with political connotations, and that's fine as long as we are aware of those kind of foundational moments and how they they became specific kind of ideological weapons in justifying the, what we now consider as white supremacy. And I think that's something we need to, to reflect upon from the very beginning, that the classical moment, for all its plurality, of, for all its uh, diversity of cultures, of races, of languages, of cultural experiences, was shaped in a specific way in modernity. You know, the the, the, the collections of the things we now come to appreciate as classical is only a very, very small subsection of what it existed in the cultures of the ancient world. So that's something we need to consider. There's a a limited stock of plays, of, of personalities, of cultural figures that are played again and again and again. So I do regret that kind of limited focus on certain iconic images or plays or figures from antiquity, which goes back to the you know early constitution of modernity. I also want people to be aware that all this heritage can have, of course, liberating potential. I'm not saying it can have only one specific political meaning and role, but very often, at least at the beginning, it was in fact structured in such a way as to justify whiteness. I want to give you an example. If you look at an example that people don't know about, uh, if you look at handbooks of biological anthropology in the 19th century, you'll often see graphs where people illustrate with drawings the different races as they imagined them. You know, it was a racialized discourse, but they imagined them you know, different and direct and distinct. In most cases, you'll have standard drawings for the so-called, you know, the black race or the Asian race, and they would have a drawing of a Roman sculpture, Apollo Belvedere, as we know, a kind of a copy of a Greek original, to illustrate the white race. So the white race, or rather a, a sculpture from the ancient world, stands for whiteness and for white race. All the other drawings are, you know, the typical little sketches to say, okay, this represents whatever the black race or what they used to call the yellow race then in the racialized language. So you could see that from only that small example, how the materiality of classical antiquity became a foundation for the edifice of white supremacy. So as long as we're aware of that history, then 
people are should be free to explore different ways and configurations of, of the cultural heritage in the present. Now, of course, at the same time, we have to exercise our critical abilities. I've seen many film productions of, let's say, Alexander the Great or Battle of uh, Thermopylae that, in fact, are presented and framed in such a militarized, almost proto-fascist way that turn it completely off. I mean, I understand why they are done. I mean, you remember the 300, right? A few years ago, probably, when it became a big cultural phenomenon. And if you were to, I know it was based on a, on a, on a graphic novel, but if you actually watch and analyze carefully the filmic language of at least the filmic version of 300, it was clearly aesthetically, at least, if not politically, a fascist kind of cultural production. So I enjoy some of the things I see that are inspired by classical heritage. And at the same time, I found many others problematic. And I think as scholars, we do need to telling people the whole story about this, you know, how these things became so popular. Why did they become so popular? Why was it that certain intellectuals in the 18th and 19th century selected specific motifs as opposed to others? And why were they producing classical antiquity in a specific way? So that's maybe a long answer to your question. No, it's good, but it's really important to hear. And I think it is really important to keep in mind just as we see, because we are living in what I'm sort of sensing people are calling like the classical renaissance, where suddenly people, especially during the pandemic, got like really super interested again in Greek and Roman mythology and history. And when we couldn't leave our houses, a lot of people turned to the ancient world. They're in in video games and other media. So I think it it is very important to keep in mind. So I just have a couple of questions to end the, the interview portion of the podcast. The first is, In Greece, do they have something like office hours for university students? They didn't when I was a student. (laughs) It was much more kind of informal. If you wanted to see a professor, you would have to go and find them after the class and arrange a time to meet. Now they do. So it does exist as an institution, yeah. Great. And so since they didn't have it when you were a student, you can answer this from your perspective as a professor, but do you have a favorite moment or conversation uh, that you've had with a student in office hours? I do enjoy Osiris a lot, and I do encourage uh, all my students to come and see me. And sometimes we do end up having fascinating discussions, almost, you know, mini seminars in the office hours. And I think that's that's great. That's something I really Welcome and enjoy. Yeah, I can give you an example. And it's to do with a teaching moment that I, I enjoyed a lot. And actually, it has led to other other things, which is great. In addition to the course I mentioned, the courses I mentioned so far, I teach another course. I'm also doing it in the spring called um, Decolonizing Classical Antiquity. As part of that class, I wanted students to research different legacies of classical antiquity, talking about the limited range of kind of figures and motifs and authors and all that. For example, just before I arrived at Brown, I arrived about 2016. So just before I arrived or the summer, before I started teaching, I realized that there's a central figure that I found very interesting and very important and fascinating. And I wanted to find more about an African-American scholar who went to Brown 
and did a degree, a master's degree in classical archaeology, classics and classical archaeology in the 1890s. He was the first African-American person to get a master's degree from Brown. And then he went to Athens and he stayed at the American School of Classical Studies and went to the ancient city of Eretria in Evia, in Eboia, and did a kind of a survey with others of the ancient city and returned and wrote a thesis on the dims of Attica. So here's a figure of an early classical archaeologist. He was studying at a small uh, black college in, in, in Georgia, coming to Brown, doing all these things. And it was until very recently forgotten or completely forgotten, forgotten also at Brown. So what I wanted to do with, with students is to get them to explore the legacy, the biography, and the history of the person. And we did have archival resources. Brown, we do have archival resources on him. Uh, we know what kind of books he got out of the library to read. We know many of those things. So I had a, discuss, a series of discussions with my students in my office hours about it. And then a number of them got motivated and went to different parts of the university and started kind of looking for traces of that person photographs of him on campus. They found a photo of him eating an apple in the kind of in the main grain of the campus and they brought it into the class, you know, the next week. They found a list of the books he had borrowed from our library. These kind of discussions I had in my office hours motivated them, energized them, all of us, not just them, to go and do that kind of archival work on um, on that person. His name, by the way, is um, John Wellesley Gilbert. John Wellesley Gilbert. Now he's more known. There is now a biography that came out a few months ago by another colleague at another university. We have installed the portrait of him at our institute uh, prominently. So it started in discussions during office hours. It led into archival work. It led into new knowledge. It led into a student-led symposium where people gave short papers reporting on the findings on this specific person and, and his legacy. That's so fascinating. That's such a cool experience that I'm glad it, it turned into something more. And okay, so now that you've shared with us that beautiful memory uh, and, and hoping that people are inspired to also discover more things like that, if you were to give like a quick 30-second to a minute long elevator pitch to just tell students like, like why should they come to office hours? What would you tell them? I would tell them that they should come to the office hours because it's their opportunity to engage deeply and thoroughly and directly with their professors. It's their opportunity to get inspired by, you know, even casual comments or casual discussions or even a reference that may hear from their professor about about a lead that I had never thought of. That kind of moment of direct interaction, especially one-to-one interaction, there's something you cannot really replace with any class you know, time. It's something that is unique and magical and can actually change someone's life. You know, Even a casual comment that we ourselves do not consider important may turn out to be extremely important from the point of view of the student. I couldn't agree more with that. That's exactly what I wanted to hear and what I hope other people agree with. So at the end of each podcast, I asked each of my guests if they would read Shelley's Ozymandias. Mm -hmm. And then after you've read the poem through, I'm just curious to know if you would share a 
couple of your thoughts, initial thoughts about it. You know, um, a lot of people cite this as one of the most influential poems of our time. And I'm, and I'm just curious to know why you think people still connect with this poem. And it also occurred to me that because I have someone who also speaks a second language, I have a copy of it in Greek. So I'm gonna give you the choice. Would you like to read it in English or would you like to read it in Greek? Actually, I haven't seen the Greek version, so I wouldn't mind reading it in Greek. It would be fun. Wonderful. Okay, well, I will screen share the Greek with you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Συνάντησα ένα ταξιδιώτη από χώρα αρχαία. Είπε, τεράστια, δίχως κορμό, δύο πόδια πέτρινα υψώνονται στην έρημο. Κοντά τους, μες στην άμμο, βυθισμένο ένα θρηματισμένο πρόσωπο. Τα σκυθροπά του χείλη, τυχωμένα σε ένα χαμόγελο ψυχρής υπεροχής. Λένε ο γλύπτης τους πως διάβασε σωστά αυτά τα πάθη, που ακόμα ζούνε χαραγμένα στα ψυχά του τα πράγματα το χέρι που τα περιγέλασε και την καρδιά που τα άθρεψε. Και πάνω στο κρυπίδι αυτές οι λέξεις αχνοφαίνονται. Ο Ζημανδίας το όνομά μου, ο βασιλεύς των βασιλέων, κοιτάξτε τα έργα μου, ισχυρή και απελπιστείτε, αλλά τίποτα δεν μένει. Γύρω από τη φθορά των κολοσιαίων ερυπείων, απέραντη, γυμνή, Μόνη η έρημος και επίπεδη απλώνεται μακριά. It was fun. <laughs> so, yeah, um, so I was thinking about this one before we started because I was thinking actually about Shelley recently. In, in writing the book, I just you know, mentioned a bit earlier, 
we're discussing Shelley because Shelley was amongst a small group of romantic poets, intellectuals and authors who got involved in the Greek War of Independence in 1821. They were supportive of the Greek cause. They supported the people who were revolting against the Ottoman Empire to found their own state. But of course, they also had their own concerns. And for many of them, you know, Shelley is a key one. Lord Byron is another. The cause was more important than uh, than the actual, you know, Greeks and the War of Independence, their own cause, their own kind of vision for liberation. It's interesting that Shelley is, a, is also, a, for me, a, a radical poet and an anarchist in many ways, an atheist and somebody who clashed with the authorities of the time. Now, this poem speaks to me in, in many different ways and in kind of different registers. And I want to mention very briefly three, uh, three connections that I see between this poem and my own work. The first line in the English we read, um, I met a traveler from an antique land. Now, that expression, antique, antique land, it actually evokes a certain mentality which was common at the time, 19th century, but also, you know, it is in some ways common uh, even today of certain places that are antique lands. Now, you can't call the US antique land, you cannot call even Britain antique land, but you call Egypt antique land, you call Greece antique land. Why is it? Why is it that the place that has also contemporary people, right? It had people in the 18th century, 19th century when Shelley wrote this, Egypt, this reference to geographical reference, this poem, had people in the 19th century, and yet the land was an antique land. So this is the first kind of mentality that I confronted in my own writing, and I found extremely interesting to comment and critique as well, what we call the allocronization of a place, a, pl a place that you consider as living in another time, a place that's not coeval, to your own life, a place that is somewhere else, that lives in another time. I think people should be aware of that kind of connection that he's making. And then, as we know, this poem is also about um, transience and about the transient nature of, of power. And I think the, the author here laments that kind of the transience of power and the transience of kind of the materiality of power as well. Okay, we know that he had at the same time in mind, I guess, the king of England and the you know the British Empire as a kind of power that he himself saw as transient and something that can actually uh, crumble or collapse at any moment. But you can also think of transients as something positive, not just as something as is you know in the sense of despair that he actually um, evokes here. Transients as something that evokes change as something that evokes the ability of things to transform themselves. The fact that you could think beyond teleology, beyond kind of a prescribed and teleological and progressive mentality about history. So um, the notion of transience here, I think, can be read in different ways. Also, in relation to transience, there is this sense of remain. So despite the collapse of the kingdom of the Zimandias, some things are there, some things were left, and some things remain. And I think archaeology teaches that, that, you know, whatever the changes, there are always things that are left and cannot be completely erased, and it can then become material traces that can be interpreted in different ways. So the statue that was meant to evoke power is now 
symbolic of a totally different idea, the idea of transience, the idea of kind of the collapse and the fragility, the fragility of great power. So that's a directly archeological lesson. And finally, the last line that I actually loved as well is about the desert, the colossal wreck, which is boundless and bare. And then the last line, it is not about the king, it's not about the statue or the power, it's about the sand. It's about the desert as a landscape feature. And I think that for me, that line was very evocative because it speaks to beyond the human. It speaks to all these other cosmic elements that we often in our own anthropocentric mentality forget and do not consider as key to the survival of the world as a whole. So it speaks to me of a kind of a hope that is grounded on landscape on environment, on elements that are not to do with humans and their own words, their own wor works in general. I mean, I love that. And that's so fascinating. And I love how you were able to distinctly pick out and relate it to your own work. You know, that's part of the magic of this poem. And I love exactly what you said about the transient nature and political power, because that's exactly how I read it. You know, it's a, it's a great statement by Shelley on the transient nature of political power. It's ephemeral. And to me, it's quite a memento mori, right? It's a reminder that we will die. And so it's only one of the reasons why it's so powerful. And because of these themes that come out so strongly, the last question I ask every single guest is, if you stop and consider our modern contemporary society today, is there, do we have a type of modern Ozymandias, like something that we think is so great and wonderful and we think it's going to last for a thousand years, but realistically, do you think it will or will we look back and say, well, that was a ridiculous, stupid idea? Yeah, I mean, I would not say that we have something that we consider great and wonderful. I think we have something that we consider inevitable or something we consider non-destructible and that's kind of civilization as a whole especially the technological kind of um, notion of civilization we consider as a great achievement and yet especially archaeology with its long-term sense of history tell us that we you know this is also transit and that you know the moment we are living today is a tiny kind of episode in the long durée of the history of the cosmos the history that got you know was here before even humanity and may also you know continue to exist after humanity has completely disappeared from earth so i think ozymandias for us today is not a single person is not a is not a single political regime is the whole concept of so-called civilization especially especially in technological dimensions I couldn't agree more. You know, there's no right answer. And I love the diversity of answers I get because it's just really fun to get people thinking about it. So yeah, I'm, I'm curious to see what my listeners think about that answer. I hope they agree. So, okay, I kind of lied because there is actually one more question I will ask you, <laughs> which is if people want to follow your, your work, you, where can they do so? Well, first of all, through my books, obviously. I mean, they can easily find many of my books if they search uh, them and they are available. But I also have, a, I believe in sharing as much as possible of my work free of charge and in an open access manner. So if they go on sites such as academia.edu or on researchgate.org, 
they will find many, many of my articles. Everything I can actually share that I'm not bounded by kind of very, very strict copyright rules. I have all there for people to download and read for free. I'm also very um, open to people contacting me and asking for things they cannot find. I'll be happy to send them work. And finally, I'm quite active on social media, so they can also get in touch with me on social media. And I often post information on new publications or speaking engagements or things like that. So it's not that difficult to find the thing. Perfect. So I will link all the different pages and social medias in the show notes so people can go and find you and your work. And I hope they do um, because it is interesting. And I myself now need to go find what all you've, you've posted open access, which is wonderful. And if I can't find anything, I certainly will be contacting you for more work to read. Welcome. But I'm excited to start with, with your new book because I want to read that. And I finally have the time now that, that I have finished. It's a short book. It's only 220 pages. And I think it, it you can read it <laughs> easily. So Perfect. Well, I will definitely be doing that as soon as possible. I just want to thank you again so, so much for agreeing to join me on the podcast and, and taking time out of your, I'm sure, very, very busy schedule. I enjoy, I love this. I enjoyed it very much. Thank you. Well, I hope to have you back on soon. Trireme Transit is now departing ancient office hours. Next stop is Present Ponderings. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.